This is The Dark Feminine. The Dark Feminine podcast is for women of color, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and those of us who are looking for our next big challenge and are maybe thinking about becoming entrepreneurs. It's made and recorded for you by Kalila Jones. I am an entrepreneur with over 10 years experience in digital marketing, and I'm the founder and CEO of Careful Feet Digital and our sister company, Dime Digital. Let's go. Today, I am really excited because I have a guest of honor, totally a guest of honor, my own dad. Um, I think that a lot of people uh, would be really surprised to hear that a podcast host has a parent on the podcast, but um, my dad is just one of the people that I have looked up to my entire life, and a big part of my professional success can be um, traced directly back to, to watching him as I was growing up. And I thought that we could talk today and really learn and, and kind of unpick some of the things that he went through in the um, 80s, 90s, and 2000s to um, become very uh, high-powered um, corporate position and kind of how things went for him as well as how things are going now. So I'm going to let my dad do the introduction because I would obviously um, probably speak about him and brag about him for a really long time. So dad, do you want to, do you want to take it away? Well, that was a wonderful introduction. And Galila, let me tell you that, that uh, I feel extra honored um, and somewhat humbled by that. But um, hello to everybody out there. Welcome to the dark feminine. Yes, well, uh, where would I start? I guess uh, I would start that uh, I grew up and was born in uh, the state of Vermont in the USA, which happens to be one of the 50 United States and the 50th state with the lowest percentage of minorities. So I grew up in a small town and my family until i was 16 or 17 years old we were the only minority family within 2000 square miles you can convert that to kilometers for me sis if you want but uh, uh began working with the u.s department of agriculture um after a stint in college and became county executive director and was within that scope of finance, doing agricultural loans and agricultural subsidies for all the farms and in my section of Vermont. Transferred to Washington, D.C. to help write policy um, when I was asked to uh, improve the programs for the farmers uh, at the nation's capital. And I realized shortly after that uh, transition that there are a lot of people who want to improve the world. Yet there are a lot of systems that are put in place to prevent that from actually occurring. Um, that ties into some of the things that you're, you've been talking about yourself, sis. And um, once I kind of came to the realization that I could not make a positive change, I transitioned into the private sector into private banking, commercial and residential lending, and ascended the ranks, became uh, 
vice president and uh, head of renovation finance for the Mid-Atlantic region with First Horizon Bank. Um, and from there, it really transitioned to what I discovered my passion to be late in life, and that is coaching, uh, both executive coaching, but personal development coaching. And that really was a transition that I discovered in banking, becoming a certified coach at the time mm -hmm. to help individuals uh, achieve their goals. And I think that's where we're in a transition to a lot of what we're talking about today from, from what I've experienced, what I've learned from my experience, and what I've been able to help others discover and transition out of uh, in regards to some of the hurdles that have been placed into their own path of success. I'm so excited to be able to un unpack this with you. I am going to say that I take a little umbrage with the use of the term late in life. Um, <laughs> for everyone who's listening, I mean, I'm not that old, so my dad can't be that old too, right? <laughs> um, and for those of you who are wondering, 2,000 miles is a little bit over 3,000 kilometers. So um, yeah, let, let's start there. Let's start with the, the early days of your life, because this is actually something that I think that personally everyone should do. They should talk to their parents about, you know, their parents' experiences in their childhood. And while that was definitely part of, I, I never felt um, like I couldn't ask you questions about your childhood growing up. I also think I was like most kids kind of self-centered on my own life. So I don't think I, I'm really excited to be able to talk with you about your childhood um, and to learn a little bit more about that. I mean, from my perspective, seeing your professional rise as a child, and obviously through that kind of inevitable childlike lens that I would have at the time, it feels like, um, you know, we, we can draw parallels to women of color now. And again, I'm, I'm only speaking through like the perspective that I, that I saw, but I would really, I feel like very few of us, um, have, have gotten to high positions of power. Very few of us have closed funding for our own businesses. Um, very, most of us feel like we have to be that like, uh, better than our best representative for, every, um, you know, minority female. And I was kind of wondering, um, can, did you feel like that when you were younger, like even before you started your professional life? I know that we have talked about this um, and we probably will continue talking about it through this podcast about this happening in your professional life as you rose through the ranks. But I want to hear more about um, if you can trace back some of those kinds of feelings to being that child in Vermont with nobody else around who looked like you who had your family background and makeup. I'm really curious to hear more about that. Well, it's kind of interesting. Uh, um, and in hindsight, I find it fascinating in the work that I do. Uh, but I will tell you this, it was not enjoyable whatsoever to, to endure. Um, yeah. My father uh, which I did not discover until very shortly before his death, was a very spiritual man, which I had already known. But um, I had discovered um, that he was the first Catholic di uh, diocesan priest in the state of New York mm -hmm. um, as a black man. Yeah, I remember. Back then, I called him colored. Mm -hmm. um, 
So he had his own struggles and had seen his own trauma. So when he and uh, my mother met and fell in love and he left the priesthood, they moved to Vermont because they wanted to be outside of the realm of city life, wanted to raise a family. They thought outside of the constraints and the confinement of what society had impaled upon uh, those of us of color. Um, and so they felt that bringing us to this rural area uh, without other minorities would be very good for our education and free from those traumas and drama that they had experienced themselves. The yeah. difficulty was with that, Clee, is they were extremely cognizant. Uh, my father was extremely emphatic um, on us representing our people. Um, we were taught very young and consistently that we had to act in accordance to our best self because everybody around would be looking at us and presuming we were the, the stereotypical um, black family that they might see on TV or see on the news. Yeah. It created a lot of pressure. It created a pressure, uh, which I later discovered, uh, evolved for me personally into a burden of perfection, which mm -hmm. is a tremendous uh, pressure of representing whether or not it's us as a color or anybody going through some cultural similarity can probably relate. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty is you either ascribe to that or you resist it. And there was another member of my family that resisted that pressure. Yeah. Uh, but, but I had to feel like I had to be best. Plus there was also a practical <laughs> application to this. And that was because I was one of only two um, African-American boys. That was the term at the time that was developing. Um, anytime something that might have gone wrong, if I had done something wrong and there were witnesses, I certainly was going to be the one. So, you know, when my brother stole a candy, candy bar, I learned very quickly, well, doggone well, David, better not do anything wrong because everybody's going to know who did it. Yeah. Yeah. You felt like you were being, um, what word am I looking for? Like surveilled in, in an extra, um, all children obviously are surveilled to some extent, but it wasn't just, Oh, I want to make sure this, you know, small child is okay. It's more of, Oh, this kid, he sticks out and yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to look at him because I'm expecting certain behaviors from him or certain, certain things. Um, well, I'm sure there was some of that. Absolutely. But the majority of what I felt at the time, was anybody who could see 200 yards away, if if somebody threw a baseball, oh, and that baseball broke a window, and all, and like typical, and kids scatter, kids are going to scatter. Well, even 150 yards away, you can say, well, one of them was black. Yeah, yeah, and it's easy, <laughs> it's easy I guess, with the, there being like a 2,000 mile radius between you and like the next family. Yeah, it's easy. That is exactly right. Yeah. I don't know which Jones boy, but I know it was a Jones boy. Yeah. Which one of the two? Yeah. That must have been just so. And did you ever feel early on, 
that you wanted to go to, you know, is that why you moved to a big city? Because you wanted that level of uh, blending in with the crowd is not really the word I want to, or the term I want to use, but just feeling a level of, okay, there are other people like me around, or was that not even something that came into your, your mind being so far away from other black people that like you, did you ever kind of, what were your thoughts around that? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Well, it's fascinating and it's interesting. And, and every time I work with a, uh, another gentleman or another female of color in, in my coaching and consulting business, we end up addressing this with others as well. But the interesting part about that was, uh, and to me in hindsight, looking at the little David, uh, it's very tragic because when we are taught by society, by uh, the media uh, or whatever lens that we see the world through, but when we learn as a child that the world sees us as less than, um, our unconscious and conscious emotional minds have to make a decision. Do we embrace the fact that we are less than by the world or do we try to come up with a coping and defense mechanism that prevents us um, for the majority of the time from seeing and experiencing what we know the world is doing. Mm. And in my circumstance, it, it, it really evolved into a process where I was able to emotionally, and this is discovered in hindsight, of course, I was able to emotionally convince myself that in this small town of 2,200 people, they had gotten used to the fact that I'm just David Jones. Yeah. And I could di di distance and detach myself for the vast majority of the time that I was being seen as black mm -hmm. so that I wouldn't feel less than. Problem was, whenever a relative would come to town, I would then make the connection. If the townspeople see me with another black man, they're going to make the connection. Oh yeah, that's right. David is black. Right. This was the deluded mind of this young adolescent. So I wouldn't go and allow myself to be seen with my favorite uncle or my favorite cousin. I would stay home. And if I had to go with the family, I would be very uncomfortable and it's tragic because I lost out and many people will in that circumstance lose out on truly experiencing the different joys and elements of a childhood. Yeah. Yeah. Do you so, wish your parents had, had raised you in a, in a big city, for example, or do you think that that, um, I, I can just imagine that that would have had its own, you know, kind of set of issues, but do you look back on that and think that you could have done it any any differently or do you think that this is just the way? Great question. Um, here's the thing, uh, and I cover this in my parenting workshops. The number one thing all we can do is expect as children trying to deal with their parents or our parents trying to learn how to parent best. The thing that we have to acknowledge and, and embrace is that all we can hope for from our parents is that they did the best they could do. And they are always going to parent from the standpoint, at least good, loving parents will. They're going to parent from the standpoint of how do I keep my children? How do I help 
them avoid some of the drama and trauma that we experienced ourselves. And that's why they did it. So yeah, yeah. they're absolutely going to bring on different different difficulties. And uh, but no, I don't wish they had done it something different uh, in a method of something differently because. I believe that many of my experiences brought me to the point of being able to help people change their lives. And I don't think that I would have been able to do that had I not experienced that. And even transitioning into college, you know, so I, I graduated, you know, high school in Vermont. I had a relative that wanted me to go to um, Florida A&M University where she and uh, her husband had gone to college. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a culture shock. That's a historically bad college. Yeah. Um, and there's 99% um, uh, black students. Um, I did not know. It was the first time in my life where I was able to experience life not thinking I'm being seen from a lens filtering out white. And how was that for you? Was That must have been, as you say, like a huge, not just like a culture shock, but uh, cognitively like super dissonant. I can't really imagine that from was, my own perspective. Yeah, it, it was extremely freeing in one aspect because I realized very quickly that for the previous 18 years of my life um, and for much of the future of my life, that I first acted and reacted based on how I wanted the world to see me in that representative role again that my father instilled upon me. Mm-hmm. So it was very freeing from the standpoint of, my God, everybody's black around me. But it was very, very discouraging in two different aspects. Number one, when one grows up learning that being black is bad, as I did from being perceived as from the world or being black is less than, well, now I am thrown into a circumstance where everybody I'm around is less than. So are we getting the best? Hmm. Yeah. And then there's the other circumstance was I didn't know how to talk to people who came from inner cities, who came from, larger cities who spoke in their urban slangs. Yeah. I did not know how to interact with women, with girls, because when you're, you know, in, uh, uh, in the late seventies growing up in Vermont, black, I certainly did not have my first date, official date until I was in college. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I never really, this is why it's so interesting to talk to you on this level, because I sometimes feel that I experienced very similar things to you when you're when you're talking about this. Um, in fact, I, I feel like I did not make my first close black friends, African American friends until I moved to London. I, I say this to people all the time. Um, but I, at least I went to school with, there were, there were a lot of black people that I went to school with. For you, it must've just been so different because of sheer, sheer like numbers, just you and, and modeling. You've never seen that before. You've never experienced that before. How did you, cause you talked about how much kind of pressure and the perfectionism that kind of spurred from the, the pressure that you, that you really felt, um, 
and kind of as well, like you use the word delusional, kind of how you had to um, delude yourself into thinking like people just see me as just David Jones. There's not really like a, a color attached to that. I'm just, you know, little Davy Jones, as mom calls you. How, how did that affect your time at university? And how did that affect some of the choices that you made from a career perspective? And I'm, I'm really interested in this because the career you've been through several different careers. And so I'm just wondering if you were being really true to yourself when you picked your first career, or if some of this stuff that we've been talking about, um, you know, played a role in the selection of careers rather than really what you would have been truly happy with and what would have been most um, true to you. Um, this is one of the reasons why this is such a successful podcast, Leila, because let me just tell you, those are phenomenal questions. Um, some of the ones that in any interview or any discussion that I've had with others, some of the ones that you're asking have never been asked, but um, it's, 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 it's interesting because it was very traumatic for me now trying to fit in because I no longer had to represent, right? I now had to figure out how do I get accepted? Mm -hmm. How do I get viewed as acceptable within this realm of people who are not going to use as the number one criteria for exclusion that I had been previously experiencing all my life. Um, so it was very, it was very difficult. I did not know how to, how to talk with the guys. I did not know how to be a black guy. I did not know how to be a black guy that black girls wanted. It was as though I discovered uh, I went to university thinking that I was going to finally fit in because I'd already known at that point regarding, uh, you know, dating life. I had already discovered at that point that I was too black for white women. Yeah. Well, then I discovered that I was too white for black women. Yeah. So I only lasted there for one semester and I transferred to a college in the north. Um, where I believe I was one of four or one of five black men who didn't play sports, and that was so probably back to what you back to what you knew or what, what you were I knew. With. Yeah, even though it was not. Yeah, you're you're describing it as traumatic. Like you've used words like trauma, delusion. So obviously, it was not great for you, but it was what you knew. Yeah, it was what I knew, and the discomfort of what I knew was a comfort in itself, which is a paradox that our emotional minds, consciously and unconsciously, can, can uh, uh, apply against our, our true self. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the circumstances that I uh, often reference is, even when I transferred back to this all-white university, uh, 92% uh, all-white, um, there were elements that I still did not um, really address. For instance, like most universities, the cafeteria would have their menu of what the dinners were going to be that week. Well, when fried chicken was on the menu, I wouldn't eat. I wouldn't go to the cafeteria. 
Because in my twisted vision and deluded vision of how I was supposed to still again represent and how the world would see me, I didn't want, which had happened in previous times, I didn't want somebody to be thinking, hey, I thought you guys, you, you black people loved fried chicken if I didn't choose the fried chicken on the menu. Yeah. And if I did choose the fried chicken, then I would just be a stereotype. So the only way that I could resist this this delusional uh, perception, and I say delusional because I truly was deluding myself into these beliefs, but that doesn't mean that there weren't those viewpoints applied against it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And yeah. so... And I think back at those things, it, it, it's a tremendous tragedy that that young man had to experience that in this world. But it is a dramatic um, experience that has evolved to where I can help so many people be able to relate to all of the traumas that they've had to deal with, whether or not it is an issue of being a minority and and suffering discrimination or whether or not it's other physical or emotional traumas that they're trying to recover from. So when you talk about has that, you know, um, transfer into my career choices, I really never made a career choice. I really just took the next step of what the opportunities that presented themselves and that I was seeking for. If if I was no longer fulfilled momentarily in a position, I would seek the next highest position. Um, I wanted to ascend to a role of executive, partly because other blacks had not for the most part, uh, but part in that effort to prove to the world I was not less than, I was yeah. equal to, if not more than, in some cases. But once I discovered what my passion and my true purpose was, that career chose me as far as yeah. the coaching and the consulting from that standpoint, because I realized that throughout this transition, throughout the um, contemplation of, of moves, throughout the reading, um, and throughout therapy, I discovered I was an intuitive empath. And I then all of a sudden understood why I always knew how to fit in with an individual. How did I get them to accept me as an individual, even if they didn't accept other blacks? In the business world, I realized this because I could feel what their walls were. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I really want to, I want to talk about that because one of the questions I have for you is around, yeah, the spirit of like collaboration or competition, but before, so I want to get back into talking about you as an intuitive empath, but before we go down that road, because um, I also want to hear more about the coaching and I, that's something that like I can remember it's in my lifetime. I think that you really have come into being um doing things for your own true self rather than the pressure and feeling like you have something to prove but before we get there and kind of i don't want to skip ahead so i want to talk just briefly um on yeah the time that you were in banking specifically that you were an executive in the banking industry and 
what that experience must have been like for you in the 90s, in the early 2000s, particularly with just me saying it, I can feel this like pressure on my shoulders, this like weight on my shoulders. If it's not, it's not something that you really wanted to do. It's something that you um, more or less, you know, you selected it because you felt like you wanted to prove that you weren't less than it was all this kind of trauma and just the word I want to use is guck, all this stuff from your childhood um, that really put you in that position. So I just want to, I want to hear about more from kind of your personal and emotional life, how it affected you to be in this role or in the roles that you were in, knowing that the intention was not, oh, this is like my life's work. This is the career that I love and that I have chosen, but more from that place of, you know, I have something I have to prove. I'm doing this because for lack of a better word, like I'm a perfectionist who needs to prove that I am perfect. You put the weight of the world on your shoulders. And, you know, I saw this again as a child. And now that we're having this conversation, I feel a little emotional and I feel a little, a little sad because I really, I can um, now as an adult really um, empathize with some of those feelings as a minority myself. I've had them. But I want to hear about how that affected you. And I think that that will be a good um, entree into kind of talking about how you came across coaching because of the this position that you found yourself in in the 90s and early 2000s. Okay. Well, first of all, let me just tell you, for your listeners out there, you already know this, but when you say briefly discuss, uh, you need to be in control of the briefly because as you know, your father, I'll go on forever. So... He will. <laughs> okay. Well, for like two or three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, the circumstances really evolved, you know, per, uh, personally. It was a, a lot of what I'm telling you, I learned um, obviously after that. So that's with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, being 2020 vision at the time I felt I was trying to prove myself at the time I was trying to attain the American dream from the standpoint of uh, financial stability um, to accomplish really only one thing at a time now prior to meeting you and your mom I really only had the desire of um, what many young men had, and that was I kind of wanted to have a career that paid a decent amount of money. I really didn't care too much about what the career, where the career led me. I knew that uh, I loved numbers. Uh, I, I really enjoyed finance, so I figured that I would have a career in government probably forever and it provided enough I could have my car I could have perhaps a dating life that I had not really ever experienced um, so there, there weren't a lot of wants other than to just be accepted by my flipping world yeah. one of the things of being able to take that that promotion to to DC with the, with the federal government and the nation's capital was that 
it wasn't just all blacks like my college first was. It wasn't just all white like my second college was where, where I grew up. It was a melting pot. Yeah. And so there was a tremendous benefit where I didn't necessarily feel ever like I stood out except in the boardrooms. Um, but I, I, I felt that, you know, I could be more of myself. And when I made that transition, I moved in with a friend of mine that I had grown up with. He was in the service and, and we rented an apartment together and it was just going to be a day by day existence. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I met you. For those of you who don't know, by the way, I am a, I'm adopted. So my, who we're listening to right now, who we're talking to, my dad is not my biological father, but he adopted me and my sisters when I was five and my, my sisters were a bit younger. So that's what he means when he says that he met me. It was like me and my sisters and, and my mom. We were a package deal, as it were. But as you can hear from our conversation, I mean, he is the one father that I know and he is, he is my father. And so when I met you and met your mom, uh, fell head over heels for your mom, um, fell, fell head over heels for, for you and your sisters and knew very, very quickly that I wanted you all in my life forever. Mm -hmm. What went along with that was I now had a new purpose. And the purpose no longer was to have a job that paid for a car loan, that paid to be able to go out every once in a while and have an apartment with a buddy of mine. Now the purpose was to be a father. Yeah. To yeah. be a provider. To be the man that my father had taught me. To be the man that I felt was what men were supposed to be. And therefore, I now had a new motivation in I reference this with my clients constantly when we have the proper motivations and we've got the abilities and we've got the, uh, uh, the aspiration in, in, in the, uh, in the attitude, we can do just about anything unencumbered by other people's, uh, standing in our way. Well, what that meant to me was I now have to leave the government mm -hmm. because now I, I'm just punching a clock effectively. And when the opportunity came to go into private banking, where it was the the revenue was commensurate with my effort and my capabilities and my production, thereby meaning had a commission. Okay, so my success, the level of business that I brought to the bank, dictated exactly how much money I would make. You got out what you put in, basically. It was a very, yeah, a clean Absolutely. and there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And therefore, I could provide as well as I wanted to for my family. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. my, my, my emotional and physical energy to put into that could not have been higher because my purpose now had become to not only represent being a black man, but now being represented, being a successful black man and a successful, what I wanted to seek to be a perfect parent, which of course is impossible. But again, this is through the eyes of hindsight. 
We only learn later in life, and I'm speaking from experience too, that perfectionism is the devil. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> the devil incarnate. It just sets us up for so much failure and feelings of just yes. So I, I totally I understand, but for the for the record, you are a very good dad, are a very good dad, but a very good dad to children is why I used the past tense there. Well, I don't know about that. I, I appreciate that. I will tell you, I, I talk in my parenting um, sessions that I have with individual couples as well as parenting workshops. I tell them I was a very, very good parent. I'm not certain I was that great of a dad. I, I think I'm a better dad now than I was then because one of the things that I also felt that went along with this burden of perfection. Um, and I would tell you girls all the time that if, if I have to choose between you and I having a great relationship and having fun or, uh, and, and you guys not being a productive member of society that is, is trained to be able to carry on life on your own. Uh, if I had to choose between that or you hating me, but being a, a, a productive member of society, I'll choose that you hate me so that you can have all the tools necessary for your life. Because I felt that is the number one role of a parent. But well, I, 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 I wish there were a lot more dad times. Hmm? I Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I've said this to... To my own husband, you know, if we ever have kids, then that's the kind of approach that I hope to bring to it too. I'm thinking of your best interests. I'm not thinking about us being best friends right now. I'm thinking about, you know, you, the, the child, in this case, my, you know, imaginary child. I want you to, to be the best that you can be. And I think that one of the things that I just have to say is that looking up to you, me now running a successful business, a big part of that is what I saw you doing and how that the model of hard work and perseverance and resilience was there from a very early age because of, of what I saw you doing. Um, and, you know, now we're picking apart some of like the reasons and the rationale behind that. Um, and it's, it's interesting. And like I said, sometimes from what we've discussed, it makes me feel a little sad because I think that, you know, the, the, reasoning for your choices was maybe not 100% like what you would have been happiest doing at that time. But I am very grateful because you were just such a model of hard work and success. And I think um, just being mindful of the, the time and we have about seven more minutes, I want to transfer to kind of talking about like, there were the, the practical tactical things that I saw you doing the hard work, the resilience, the fact that, I mean, you worked uh, more or less nonstop when I was um, in middle and high school. I mean, you worked so much. But then I know that you had this moment where you realize, like, you know what, this is not what I want to be doing anymore. And I, I kind of want to hear more about what led you to that moment. If it was maybe um, you've mentioned like the kind of internal um, you know, discussions you've had with yourself, the therapy, the just kind of growing, growing older, growing wiser, I guess, and really starting to think like, is that perfectionism that I've really put on myself? Is that serving me? Or can you kind of get rid of the, or did you kind of get rid of the, 
the pressure that you felt from being little Davy Jones, the only, you know, black boy or one of two black boys um, from, you know, in like a 2000 mile radius. How did you come to the moment where you were just like this career, this kind of life path is no longer serving me? And I want to also hear, I want to hear about that, but I also want to hear about that in the context of kind of a spirit of collaboration or competition. So you talked about being an intuitive empath. And so one of the things that I also really look up to you for is that I always felt like growing up, you would not only like lead someone else to, to an open door, but you would see them like through and like lead them around the room. I guess that's the best allegory I could use. I, I always felt like you were looking out for other people in our community, really helping other people, um, you know, further themselves. So I want to, I want to hear about that. And I want to hear about whether you feel like you got that kind of, yeah, generosity of spirit, um, that intuitive empath capability from your, your experiences growing up. I just want to hear about and kind of close out with hearing about what you're doing now, but also really what led you there. Well, uh, the path of discovery that I was an intuitive empath is, is one that I am not 100% certain um, how that fully evolved. I battled back and forth in my mind the different theories of how that is. I, I call it be, um, being an intuitive empath, I, I call having as a gift and a curse because it is extremely difficult uh, sometimes to have a relationship with somebody who is an intuitive empath because they know always know what you're thinking, how you're feeling, and the rationale behind it. Um, so it's very difficult. It was difficult for your mom. It was difficult for me not knowing that that's what I was. Mm -hmm. Not knowing that everybody didn't feel this way and know how somebody else felt. So from the, I don't know whether or not I was born with that or if that was a skill that was evolved from my early trauma of having to fit in because the easiest way to fit in is to know what another individual is seeking, right? Sure. Well, in that career path, that quickly discovered that whether it was financial sales or vacuum uh, cleaner sales, um, which I did during summers in college, um, it is an extremely imperative a skill to have to succeed in business, especially as an entrepreneur. Yep. But the problem is until we discover our own crap or what you call gook and deal with our own gook, we don't necessarily have that ability or know why. Does that make sense? It does, and, 100%. And so um, when I got to the point of realizing that um, – because I, I work with my clients that, you know, you got to have a motive for a reward. And once the reward is no longer worth the energy, the effort, the, the uh, things that drove the motivation to get that reward, well, then you lose all, well, most people, 99.9%, um, .9%, I try not to speak in the infinitives, but most people are going to stop applying the same amount of effort. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Of so without getting too in-depth personally, well, when your mom and I split and I started discovering all this stuff of why I had been doing these things, 
And for your listeners, Cleo's mom and I are very dear friends to still to this day. <laughs> Love her dearly, Clay. But um, I discovered that my motivation no longer and, and really had not been um, to only be a great provider. It was so that I would see myself as a great provider. Mm-hmm. And so when when we split and you girls were were uh, uh, of of your own age of being an adult, um, the reward wasn't there. So the effort wasn't there. And going through the therapy to deal with how do I deal with this internal angst is when I discovered I was an intuitive empath. It's when I discovered I have to live for myself. And it's when I discovered that not only is my true purpose to help people, but that I had been really trying to do that all along Mm -hmm. by working with people and getting them to accept me. Because even in banking, I would spend tons of extra hours teaching them about their finances. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. So much time. So all of those types of things brought me to the point where I have discovered my purpose and my purpose is to help people understand the hurdles that have been placed in their life, whether by somebody else or by their own trauma or their own trauma. Okay. Uh, And eliminate those to be able to find their own purpose find their levels of success based on authentic motives. Because as you and I both know, when we seek the success defined by others, we are going to utilize the efforts that are defined by others and neither of which are fulfilling to self. So I work with people to help them figure out what their authentic scope of self is, which means Are you looking at the world through a realistic lens? And do you, like little Davy, do you look at the world that is looking back at you and feeling that you are less than? And one of the reasons all of my life, and I had gotten grief for this at different times and and questioned about it, it's one of the reasons that I relate so much to the gay population, to so much to women, the vast majority of my clients, I'd say set between 75 and 80% have always been women. And the vast majority of the reason I, I, I can relate to other minorities, other religions, because of being looked at and I help them and empower them to realize what the power of themselves truly is, regardless and sometimes in spite of how the world looks down upon them. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so, I mean, it's interesting because a big, when I started my own business, I did not realize how important mindset is in everything that I do, how important my mindset is to every conversation that I have, to every sale that I make, to every email that I write. It's so important. And I think that, you know, your mindset would not be you wouldn't have clarity and authenticity of purpose um, if you hadn't done work on yourself. And so what it's, it's just interesting that I feel like um, almost every conversation that I have on this podcast, that is what it comes down to. Um, and Absolutely. you are, I think, this living, breathing example of that, of the fact that you can be super successful 
um, while you're going through that work, but how you can make this like huge leap and make this much larger impact. Um, I don't think any of us can say we're ever done with working on ourselves, but once you really crack it and really are so intimately um, familiar with that clarity and that authenticity and that purpose. And I just want to say thank you so much for being willing to talk uh, to me about these things in, in not in front of, but you know, knowing that hundreds of people are going to listen to this, that's putting yourself in such a vulnerable position. But again, I think that that comes back to the fact that you are so clear and authentic on what you want to offer. Um, so just, I feel so lucky to call you my dad and thank you so much for, for being on the podcast today. Well, thank you so much for having me. And just remember one thing, and that is when we stop learning, we're acknowledging we no longer want to grow. Speaking of that, can you tell people where they can find you um, online, how they can get in touch in case they have some discovering and learning about themselves that they want to do and, um, you know, want to lean on you for support? In support of the Dark Feminine podcast, I'm going to provide one of Clearly's listeners with a very special coaching package. It's a $3,500 package over a six-week period of time. We'll have five sessions, an additional introductory session with homework um, in between each session. So don't think that this is just a, uh, easy peasy. Uh, you're going to work, and I'm going to work with you. We're going to discover all the hurdles that are in your life preventing you from obtaining what you want in your personal life as well as your professional life whether you know they exist or not. That's what we're going to be doing together. So if you're interested in this, send an email to me at captivecoach at gmail.com. That's captivecoach at gmail.com with a brief three, four paragraph explanation of why you think this would be the best thing for you at this time and how my coaching sessions can help you. I and Kalila will review those emails and see who maybe gives the best explanation and best reason to receive the package and they will be the winner. That sounds like a great giveaway. So good luck to uh, whoever whoever joins and whoever wins the, the giveaway. And thank you again so much, Dad, for sharing your story and experiences with us. Stay tuned for next time where I will be talking all about the myth of being self-made and what that means for those of us who really are, hopefully coming your way in the middle of December 2020. Until then... Have a great couple of weeks and thanks for listening.